We indeed come to the Word of God looking for transformation. It's what Paul is talking about uh, as he is engaging the Philippians in this uh, letter, which is a sermon. We talked a little bit about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Paul is seeking to really engage their, the hearts and the lives of the Philippian church. If you remember last week, there were a number of things. Paul was saying to live as Christ and to die as gain. He had this singular focus uh, about the person and the work of Christ and what that meant in his life, and then also what it meant in the life of the Philippians. And uh, he talked about what it was to, to serve one another, to look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He talked a little bit about what it meant to stand firm and what it meant to suffer. Uh, and so now, here we come in what we see as chapter 2. But again, uh, no, no chapter divisions in Paul's original letter. So the, the, fault, the thought flow uh, just continues on. So what Paul just read for us continues exactly where we left off last week. And, and that's really important because what Paul is going to do here is he is going to say, you can do this. You can do this. You can serve. You can, uh, you can humble yourself. You can stand firm. You can suffer. You can do this because what Christ has done for you. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the sort of the flow of where this is. And in many ways, what we come to here in Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11, is the heart of the book of Philippians. Um, some of you are familiar with the Bible Project. I, I meant to link this in my Friday letter this week, but I forgot. Um, uh, the Bible Project, they do these great little videos on the various books of the Bible. And if you look at their work on the book of Philippians, they, they, they put this, this Christ hymn that we have here, verses 6 to 11 particularly, as the pivot point of everything that Paul is saying in the book of Philippians, and it's really true. Uh, so this is some of the, the greatest, I think, you know, if many of you know Scripture just a little bit, you may know Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. So my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would use me like a flashlight uh, to illuminate the great truths that are already here. I, I cannot add anything to what is here in the Scripture, but there is some real beauty here that I hope captures your heart. And one of the things I realized as I was kind of going through this is I actually have four points today. So you see three there. Uh, you see the hero, the hinge, and the how-to. I want to start with the whole. Uh, in, in some senses, this is still the introduction because uh, we remember that Paul is writing to a particular people at a particular time, and, and they are struggling with a hole in their life, in their community that needs filling. Uh, so this would be a hole that needs filling. And the hole is this. They are a church that is experiencing rivalry. Remember back in chapter 1, Addison, that, that second week that we were looking at this, he was talking about 
people there in Philippi who were preaching Christ out of rivalry and envy. Uh, there is contention, we're going to come to that, between particular people, Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4. Uh, so there is these, these differences of opinion, differences of uh, philosophy, style, whatever, uh, that are infecting the book of Philippians, uh, or the church at Philippi, and uh, that's occasioned the book of Philippians. And, and Paul is addressing these things. He says, do nothing out of, what are the words that he used here? Do nothing from rivalry, that's that same word from chapter 1, or conceit. Some of you know that that um, term is translated in different ways, vain conceit in, in some translations. It, it translates a Greek compound word, kenodoxia, uh, which means empty glory or empty of glory. Uh, and, and this is the whole that not only is driving the Philippians, like there's an emptiness in them that they're trying to fill. There's this envy, this rivalry, this vain conceit, this kenodoxia, kenosis, doxia, glory, doxology, kenosis, empty, that they're trying to fill in, in whatever way that they are going about doing it. And again, this is something that we can all relate to. I was uh, reading just some various quotes this week. So one of them that stood out to me was uh, Karl Marx. I am nothing, but I must be everything. Man, that poor, denuded, or, or naked, bare creature must repress his own smallness. So, so here's that, that whole that, that empty of glory hole that we have, and whether it's politics or whether it's, uh, you know, our, our jobs, our careers, our families, uh, the success that we have, the art that we engage in, whatever it is, we're, we're seeking to fill that hole uh, that, that each one of us has, uh, this rivalry, this envy, this selfish ambition. I came across uh, another story. Uh, it's from uh, Matthew Stewart's new book, The 9.9%, The New Aristocracy That Is Entrenching Inequality and Warping Our Culture. Uh, and, and one of the things that he is pointing out in this book is that parents, in seeking to fill that hole in their lives, that glory hole that we have, uh, we, we do all sorts of things to invest in our kids, you know, whether it's their schools, uh, their nannies, their extracurriculars, there, there's just this drive to be the best, to have the best. Now, it's not necessarily a wrong thing in and of itself. Uh, we, we are called to care for our kids. We are to use our resources to care for our kids, all of the above. But I do think it's important to stop and ask, okay, what is driving us? Like, what's the motivation? What may be operating in the background that we're not even aware of? And, and he suggests a couple of things. He says one possible driving motivation uh, that is, is pushing parents into this direction is fear. People intuit, 
especially part of his contention is if you're in the top decile of, of income, status, wealth in the world, you know, you intuit that it's a game of meritocracy. And the odds of increasing are, uh, uh, the odds of su- succeeding are getting increasingly wrong, long. So parents are working very hard to stack the odds in their kids' favor. Uh, so we, we have this fear that our kids aren't going to make it. And so we get them all the things that will put them ahead. We get them the tutoring. We get them the, you know, the extra pitching lessons. We, we get them the extra music. Why? What, what's driving us? It's the fear that they're not going to be enough. Or he suggests maybe there's just a lack of imagination slash trust in us. Where, where we can only picture one possible future for our kids, and that involves college, and that involves all of these different things, when in reality, there are all sorts of ways uh, that you can be God's person in this world. The, the point is, whatever it might be, you know, whether it's Marx and his grand idea that, that man is nothing and must be everything, or whether it's our parenting or our careers, there are these things that, that move or operate in the background of our, uh, of our lives and our hearts that are, that are pushing us, saying, it's not enough. You've got to do more. And, and Paul is saying, like, this is a problem. Like, you, you are motivated out of envy. You're motivated out of this empty of gloriness. And that should not be your motivation for how you engage life. You're, you're going to run out of energy. It's, it's never going to be enough. But there's something that is much more fulfilling and it's so interesting here that what Paul does, and I, I mean, I think you will admit, like, if we were to talk about these things, like, these are really practical things. Like, how do I think about my success? How do I think about my relationships, my romantic relationships? How do I think about my parenting? All of those things. Very practical things. But do you notice how Paul answers these? He answers them with a dose of theology. I mean, this is some of the highest, uh, specifically Christology, in all of the Scriptures. You know, when we come to chapter 6 to 11, and Paul takes what is true, and he applies it to what to do. Now, we don't often think that way. We, we sometimes, you know, just are, are thinking about practical in terms of more simple type ideas, that kind of thing. But Paul says, no, if you, if you want an answer to the most uh, practical daily aspects of your life, you need to leverage the deep theological truths that are given to us in the Scripture. And particularly here, he, he gives us this hero like no other. Um, 
it, it's so interesting. What we have here, chapter or verses six to eleven, is probably a, a hymn that was part of the early church. It seems to have been extant in the the various communities. Uh, they knew this. Paul uh, most likely didn't write it, but he was referencing this uh, in some way, shape, or form. So, however that worked out, we we know that these ideas here were common, and they were almost like a creed, you know, like we would uh, confess the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father. These are the things that they were talking about creedily uh, with regards to Christ, what they believed with regards to Him. This is His... uh, I, you know, I was going to say his Wikipedia page, you know, his, his describes his life, except for it's a lot more trustworthy than a Wikipedia page. Uh, this is, this is his, the description of his life. And, and notice here how it goes. You know, the, the basic movement is, though he was God, he was equal to God. Morphe, to Morphe, Theo. He, he was in form God. It doesn't just mean his exterior form, but it means his very essence, his very likeness. And again, this is high Christology. This was worked out in the church, series of councils. Uh, people were judged heretics on, on how they went with some of these things. But, but we have our, our confessions that have stood, you know, from, from the beginning of the church that Jesus was God. He was equal to God. He wasn't just similar to God, but he was, he was co-equal with the Father. And he gave it up in order to come to earth. In so many ways, this passage uh, sort of mirrors the Isaiah 53 passage that we read. He took on the form of a servant. Some of you know that Isaiah 53 is one of the servant songs. Uh, He took on the form of a servant. He made himself nothing. He had no form or majesty that we should admire him. He was despised. He was rejected. And and we see here in verses 6 to Eight, we see the what we call the the state of humiliation of Christ, um, and then that is followed, of course, in in nine to eleven of what we call his state of exaltation, uh, the fact that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Uh, to the glory of the Father. And of course, that was so significant in that first century because Caesar was Lord. And and particularly in Philippi, as we've mentioned, a Roman colony, so many Roman citizens, people that served in the military, all bound up in terms of emperor worship. They knew that Caesar was Lord. And if you didn't worship Caesar as Lord, you could be executed, you could lose your job, could lose your life, all of these different things. But this is the story that, uh, that, that God tells us, that Paul brings to bear on this emptiness that is in the Philippians' life. But here's the thing that is so important to recognize here. Note the, the language that is used here to describe uh, the incarnation 
Uh, if you look in verse, probably verse 6, let me get there. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality uh, with God a thing to be grass, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. That phrase there, made himself nothing. Again, some of you know other translations, and that phrase is actually he emptied himself, kenosis. Uh, the same word, uh, the same root that Paul was referring to earlier. You're doing these things because you're empty of glory. But how is it that this hero, who is unlike anyone we have ever seen or met, comes to address this problem? He comes to address this problem by emptying himself. And this is the heart of the gospel right here. It's that in order to meet us at our point of deepest needs, in order to meet us in sort of our existential cosmic emptiness, the one who was equal with God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on the form of a servant and he emptied himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is why he's a servant like no other. I mean, every other hero uses his strength. Every other hero uses his cleverness or his gifts. Every other hero goes to battle clad in his armor. But the hero that we meet here in Philippians 2, the hero that we are told will meet us at our deepest need is one who goes to battle naked and hanging on a cross. The one who goes to battle despised, rejected, stripped, beaten, bleeding out, uh, desperate, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The hero that we meet here is the one who experienced the ultimate turning away, emptiness, in order that we might be filled. And this is the deep, deep truth that, that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. Like, this is, this is the story of humanity, envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, glory-hungry, empty, met by, filled by the one who will empty himself on our behalf and who then is exalted because he emptied himself and was given the name above all names that at every, uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. Do you see the sort of inside out, upside down nature of the gospel? And this then begins to give us our way forward. 
Uh, this is the, the hinge that will bear weight. I was thinking of the hinge in my uh, backyard. We have uh, a fence, you know, piece of fence cut away so I can get, you know, from the front yard to the backyard and has a hinge on it. But the hinge is, is not really sufficient and the gate sang, sags. Uh, and, you know, it's a battle every time trying to get that thing to swing right. But but here, you know, when we come to Christ, we, we have a hinge that can hold the weight of all of our hopes, dreams, fears, longings, expectations. It, it, can, it can bear the weight of the practicalities that we face, you know, of our relational breakdowns, of our depression, of all of the things that we are struggling with. We, we have one that can bear the weight. And that's why, you know, we're told a couple of times, if you look at verse 5, you see it says so clearly, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he, he's really repeating some ideas here that he starts with in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy make my joy complete by being of like mind. We'll get to that in just a minute. But do you see what he's saying here? He's saying you, you have this hero who was willing to empty himself. Now, I should tell you, you know, just from a, for those of you who are theologically curious, when, when it says that Jesus emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. Uh, it, it means that he, he put his, his deity, as it were, in the background. I mean, this is the incarnation. There are, are divine mysteries here that, that we will never be able to explain. I mean, these are eternal mysteries. Uh, so so he's no, it doesn't mean that he's no longer God, but it means that he allows his deity to be in the background and to suffer this humiliation. And, and what Paul is saying here, this, this hinge that allows us to take this truth uh, and apply it to our lives, is that this is our mind in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says, have this mind in you, which is yours. It's yours. It's your mind. If you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ who, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He says, you know, consider if there is any encouragement in Christ. That's, that's not just a random preposition, but Paul is using this to say, this is your identity, Believer, this is who you are. You see sort of Jesus' IMDb page. You see his description of his life. This now is applied to you. And you are the one who knows glory and humility and exaltation. This is the mind. These are the resources that are at our disposal. This is what we surrender into and that we learn from. It's interesting what Paul says in verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, affection, sympathy. He, he says, it, you know, if, like, of course there is. Of course there's encouragement in that. Of course uh, there is comfort in the love that God has for us. It's very similar if you just turn back in your Bible a couple of pages. Ephesians chapter 3. When Paul prays for the Ephesian church, uh, verses 14 to 19, he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you see what Paul is praying? He's saying, I pray that you know how much you are loved that you have the comfort of love. I pray that you know the strength that you have through the Holy Spirit who is living and taking up residence in you and uh, in engaging you in so many surprising and wonderful ways. Like Paul says, this is the foundation for how you live. You, you take in and you are filled with all the fullness. Do you hear that language? You're no longer empty. You're no longer glory starved. But you are filled with all the fullness of Christ. So that you can begin to love one another. You can live a life that uh, is worthy of the gospel like Paul was talking about last week in chapter 1 toward the end there. This is, this is what Paul is helping the Philippian church see. Like I've just put these big challenges in front of you. Serve one another. Uh, stand firm against the opponents of the gospel. Suffer well. How do we do it? It's filled with the fullness of Christ who emptied himself in order that we might be full. So what, is that, what does that look like? I mean, very, very practically, you, you've got to take, you know, this truth that is sort of external to yourself, you know, the, the incarnation, the humiliation, the exaltation of Christ, and, and you've got to meditate on it. And you've got to bring it into your heart. You've got to allow it to be your engine and your motivation. So it's the expulsive power of a new affection. Uh, Thomas Chalmers' sermon, you know, this idea that when we bring that inside, so then motivations like fear, like if I don't do this for my kids, they're never going to be enough. You know, that's a a motivation that, that can't, ultimately stand the test of time, but the finished work of Christ as a motivation for loving our kids, for caring for our kids, for loving our neighbors, for engaging one another, that is something that is rock solid and will continue to burn even in the midst of the fiercest storm. 
You've got to take this truth and allow it to inhabit your hearts. All of us, I mean, little kids, college students, older people, what do we believe about life and death? Well, we believe that there is life through death and that dying isn't the absolute worst thing in our, in our world. So when we believe those things, we, we bring those into our hearts uh, and they change the way we think about what brings us significance or security, any of these things. And, and you note that Paul does go into the very practical here, how to, how to that, that shapes our lives. I think there are three things here that just quickly highlight for you. You know, one is this idea of unity. We've already mentioned that there's rivalry, ambition, there's specific disagreement between people. And Paul is saying, you know, when we really bring Christ into the center, this is not how it's supposed to play out. We're to be of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And and note, he's not saying become of the same mind. Do do you see the difference of what I'm about to say? He's saying, be of the same mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Like you have the same mind. You you have the finished work of Christ as the, you know, sort of the operating system of our lives. Like that is ours. So our, our, our goal is not necessarily to agree on this and this and this. Our goal is to come to Christ and allow that to shape then the importance of this, this, and this, and how we do it. And, and that's really, I think, how we begin to engage with the kind of humility uh, that is being spoken of here. You know, Paul says, you know, in humility consider others better than yourselves. Uh, humility is, is such a, a big thing, but of course we get it when we see Christ. We see the way that He operated in humility. Uh, Tim Keller, in just referencing this particular passage, references uh, Jonathan Edwards and his broader work called Charity and Its Fruits. It's a really good series of sermons that Edwards do- did um, that is just full of good stuff. But he has a section in there where he talks about humility, and specifically he talks about uh, humility being opposed to, and, and see, Paul is talking about that here. He's saying, don't do this out of rivalry uh, or, uh, or selfish ambition or conceit, but do it in humility, which is opposed to, it's different than uh, drivenness. These are Edwards' four categories, drivenness, scornfulness, willfulness, and self-consciousness. You know, the, the truly humble person will, will not have that need to succeed, that drivenness comes from trying to fill the emptiness. But if you're truly filled with Christ, you don't have that same drivenness, scornfulness, you know, the need to put down others who don't share your viewpoint. 
You know, that, that's coming out of a place of pride. And, and it's coming out of a, an emptiness. It's not coming out of a fullness. So when we take to the internet and we, you know, lambaste this person or that person, when we deride uh, someone else in our personal conversations, recognize that that's coming out of your emptiness. That, that's not coming out of a fullness that Christ gives you. Uh, the third one that he mentions is willfulness, and what he means by that is that you always need to be right. You know, just that, that need, it's, it's the opposite of being humble. Uh, this, uh, the, the person who is willful in this way, uh, they, they may be wrong, but they're never in doubt, uh, and they don't listen to others that are in their life. And the last thing that uh, Edwards mentions with regards to humility is that it, it loses its self-consciousness. Uh, this is uh, C.S. Lewis. I think I referenced it last year. The truly humble person doesn't think less of themselves, but they think of themselves less. And this is what Paul says, when we are filled with all the fullness of Christ, when, when we take into ourselves the truths of Christ emptying himself, Christ's exaltation, all of those, the way that he conquered sin and death, when we, when we take those into ourselves, we, we begin to engage the, those outside of us in a different way. The final thing here is just the service, you know, look to the interest of others, you know, not only have your own interests in view. Paul's not saying here that you can't ever think about yourself, uh, but note the word only. <laughs> you know, there's not this perseveration on ourselves, uh, but we are also thinking about the interests of others. And I think you know, like, there's so much in our world and in our life, you know, just day to day, when I get up in the morning and I, you know, have my coffee, what do I do with my coffee cup when I'm done with it? You know, if I think about the interests of others, I, I rinse it out and put it in the dishwasher. But if I'm th only thinking about my own interests, I, I'm like in a hurry, and so I leave it on the counter and leave it for somebody else to deal with. I mean, that's, that's a small example of, of the types of things that happen over and over and over in our life. We've been struggling with this over the last sort of year and a half, you know. How do we do this with regards to COVID, with regards to the pandemic? How do we, how do we really love one another? You know, how do we think about ourselves less in this and truly love one another. A lot of the, you know, focus has come on masks and mask wearing, public gatherings. You know, we, we all need to submit ourselves uh, to Christ here and, and begin to say, okay, what does it look like to really live out of a fullness that comes with Christ? To recognize, you know, how do, we, how do we love one another? It may be wearing a mask. It may not be wearing a mask. It may go beyond that. You may wear a mask and not be loving other people in other parts of your lives. You know, the, the point is, is that Paul says, be filled with Christ. Allow Him to fill you and shape your thinking, to shape your life. 
Because when, when, he, when he and his ministry, his, his incarnation, when that, when that enters into our life, it's going to change the way that we view the world. No longer will our own interests, our own rights, no longer will those things rise to the surface. But what, what will rise to the surface is how is Jesus glorified? How do we do that? It's interesting to me, you know, Paul, throughout the book of Philippians, you know, he, he's going to be very specific with the Odeon Syntyche in, in chapter 4, and, and he's going to call them out in a way that I think I would get in trouble if I called out specific people uh, in the course of, of my preaching. But um, <coughs> Paul calls them out, but he never tells us exactly what the issues are. Because he doesn't want the issue to become the main thing. You know, what he wants to do is he wants to keep the, the fullness of Christ the main thing. Session was wrestling with this a little bit even this last Tuesday night in our session meeting. You know, how do we continue our life together? What sort of things do we say about masking or not masking, about this or that? How do we think about vaccines? What kind of instruction should we be giving the congregation? And in the end, you know, looking at Philippians, thinking about this, this was, you know, kind of where we came. Like, the best thing that we can say is be filled with Christ. Love one another. Be humble with one another. And there are lots of ways that that is going to be manifested, and there's going to be lots of ways which we're going to fall short. But how do we continue to engage one another, whether we're masked or unmasked? You know, how do we continue to engage one another and say, let's go back to this high Christology. Let's go back and, and, and humble our hearts and our lives before the, the goodness of who God is. And let's be filled in our emptiness with the fullness of Christ. Because that's the only thing that ultimately is ever going to lead us forward. May it be so. Uh, may, uh, may we have in us this mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for how it meets us both esoterically. Big thoughts, they, they blow our minds. Uh, how can we conceive that you who, uh, being equal to God, made yourself nothing? We, we cannot really understand that. And yet you did. You came to this earth, uh, you had no form or comeliness that we should desire you, you made yourself obedient to death on a cross. Father, we pray that this mind of Christ that is in us uh, would be accessed by your people, uh, that our prayers, rather than praying against that or against this, would drive towards Christ. And that we would find ourselves rooted, anchored, uh, established in the love of Christ, even as Paul prays for the Ephesians and challenges the Philippians with here. Father, we pray that it would resound in unity. Uh, we pray that it would resound in glory uh, to you. And, and we pray that it would resound in, in the conversion of those who, who do not know you as their Lord and Savior. We love you. 
We thank you for uh, this challenge yet again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.